We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. We're reviewing historical rookie results and talking main event strategy on Roto-Viz Radio. What's up, Roto-Viz? Hi, everyone. Welcome on into Rotoviz Radio, brought to you by FFB Cast and the FFPC. I'm Dave Cabin, Senior Fantasy Analyst at Rotoviz. I'm joined by Matthew Friedman, the Editor in Chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the Action Network. I was on vacation last week, so we took the week off, but I am back. And Matt, it seems that you managed to make it through the week without talking to me. Uh, yeah, and uh, my wife was also on vacation, so basically, I made it through the week without talking to anybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that sounds yeah. great. Yeah, it was uh, it was its own uh, trial, uh, but also triumph. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, tonight, we are going to be breaking things up into two segments. In the first portion, uh, we're going to begin to strategize our approach for a team that you and I will be co-managing. This season, and in the second half, we're going to look into some historical rookie results. In specific, how often rookies end up being usable fantasy options, which is, 
I think very topical right now, now that we're making our change out of that dynasty mindset into redraft and making sure that we're not getting too crazy with some of these rookies that we've talked up so much, because uh, there is some historical data that may help us consider rookies in a better context. But before we go any further, I do want to remind everybody about a company called FFB Cast. We've talked about them a number of times now, but every time I still wish that I had come up with this concept. What they do is FFB Cast records custom podcasts for your fantasy league. Right now, they have a draft recap special. Basically, you draft in your league, they recap it, put it into a really cool podcast format. You get breakdowns of how your draft went. They really tailor these to your specific league. Uh, right now, you can get Denny Carter ADP check-ins. Denny will give his two cents on where players are drafted relevant to their ADP. Break down what's going on in your league in this custom-tailored league-specific podcast. FFBcast provides many options when it comes to covering your fantasy league. They have quick clips episodes uh, that have a video portion where FFBcast will live stream the recording on their Twitch channel, all while displaying your league's webpage. They also have weekly recap episodes as well that are really, really fun beginning week one of the NFL season. And they also offer the opportunity for you to hire industry experts to make guest appearances on your podcast. So if there's some fantasy experts out there that your league really enjoys, you could have them cover your league in a podcast. Uh, so definitely check this out. Follow them on Twitter at FFBcast. Check them out on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube. Then head over to FFBcast.com today for your league's very own custom podcasts. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, Matt and I are going to be embarking on an interesting process starting in late August when he and I will be drafting and then co-managing a team in the FFPC main event. So what I wanted to do was every couple of episodes check in with Matt and we're going to start workshopping our strategy and our approach and bringing up some of the things that we think would be interesting for listeners to hear us talking about, but also things that would be worthwhile for them keeping in mind while they're drafting their own teams. So before we get into the specifics of how this league is going to work and some of our thoughts, any overarching thoughts on a league like this, a main event league, which is high stakes? I don't know if you've ever done a league before, Matt, that is uh, as expensive of a buy-in as uh, the main event is. Yeah, that's true. This is uh, my first time playing at Stakes This High. Um, my general uh, kind of philosophy is that if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I, you know, I want to shoot big. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I have played in some expensive leagues before, um, but a $1,850 buy-in is the biggest... Uh, or the most expensive league that I will have played in. I will say this though, I am not intimidated. Uh, and I actually think that what I've discovered playing in expensive leagues before is that you don't really need to be that intimidated. If you're doing the research, you're really into it and you're dedicated, like you're going to be okay. So, uh, you know, maybe if you're somebody out there that's been thinking of getting into some of these more competitive leagues, you know, maybe you don't start with a main event, but I have had really good experiences in the past um, 
playing in leagues that may have been intimidating back when, like, when I started playing heavily, probably back in like 2013 timeframe, but it's definitely pretty fun. So we will talk a little bit more about your thoughts of going bigger, going home, but, uh, to kind of give a context to this league, $500,000 grand prize. There's 2,400 teams max. Each league has 12 teams. The regular season, I think this is important, runs weeks 1 to 11. Playoffs are week 12 to 13. The championship round is weeks 14 to 16. And the winner of the tournament is the team with the highest sum of total points scored from week 14 to 16 added to their one game point average from the regular season. So said differently, basically you take your average point total from the regular season and you add that to your total from weeks 14 to 16, 20 player rosters. It's tight end premium. You start one quarterback, two running back, two wide receiver, one tight end, two flex, one kicker, one D and your flex can be a running back wide receiver or tight end. The other things, Matt, that we need to think about too is Within your own league, the first seed based on best head-to-head record gets two grand, and the two seed there is the remaining team with the most points. They get two grand. Um, then there's also some other little things in there for if you're winning in both. Uh, if the one seed team also finishes with the most regular season points, it will be awarded a $1,000 sweet bonus for a total regular season prize of three grand. And then if you win the playoffs... Um, you can get a $2,500 cash plus free entry into the main event next year or take $4,000 cash. Second place gets a free entry into the main event next year um, or $1,500 cash. And then third place gets $500. So that was a lot to run through right there. Um, but this will be worthwhile knowing in a second. But first, have you ever yeah. co-managed a team before? Uh, yes, I have with uh, Pete Overzet. Okay. Um, in the Road of His Dynasty League. Uh, so he came on a couple of years ago. So it's it's kind of funny. I was uh, in a situation where I didn't know a lot of IDP, mm-hmm. and I wanted to bring on someone to kind of help with that, but I forgot to tell him that it was an IDP league. <laughs> so he joined, and he was like, "What the hell is this? Um, this isn't what I signed up for." And at the same time, like. He didn't help with IDP at all. So there was like no oh point to bringing him on. But it was like – it was good to bring him on. Uh, I, I like the experience and uh, we are kind of revamping the Road of His Dynasty League and uh, we are still going to manage that team together. Oh, nice. Um, one question I have yep. about everything you just ran through. This league, is it um, a regular management style league or is it best ball? Regular management. Yeah, I figured. But uh, that's I think that's an important distinction yep. uh, just based on the type of players you might tend to draft. Yeah. And I think that um, also considering the type of players that we might be playing against to factors into this because it's important for us to recognize that after the draft, you know, we're not going to be able to pick up maybe even in the later rounds some of these guys that with less experienced players or less focused players would be able to pick up. And then also it should be um, a pretty competitive league in terms of picking up guys. I mean, anybody playing in this league is going to be very active. So there's going to be no kind of advantages that we might have in normal leagues just from paying so much more attention to this than the normal player. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's jump into strategy. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to think about with how we would want to do this. Right. So I guess the first question I have for you is, 
Are we going to play to win our league or win the contest? Is there even a difference? What's your take on that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think there has to be some sort of difference. So I think when you are playing to win your league, um, you still, I mean, it's, it's GPP-esque in that you are trying to beat 11 other people. Um, but you can, so you, you shoot for upside, but I still think you, you can sort of balance that with, uh, you know, going for players who you feel fairly secure about in their ability to like return value. Um, with, with something like this, where you're trying to beat literally, I mean, it's in stages, but you're trying to beat like 2,399 other teams. Yep. Um, I think you have to approach it a little bit differently, but I, I think, I mean, you still do some of the same things that you would do, I think, in the later rounds. You just maybe do it a round or two earlier. Yeah, I think that it would be easy to overstate the impact of this being a larger tournament because the difference is it's not like DFS where maybe the most random team you could possibly assemble one week might just hit and win. Um, you know, because you're going to be assembling your teams in the confines of a snake draft, it's not like there's going to be these radical differences. So to some degree, it's more about hitting that those one or two type of players versus trying to diversify your lineup. So it's entirely different than everybody else's. So that consideration's kind of gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's accurate. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if you're trying to go ahead and take the larger pool, you do have to be willing to take some chances on players that you feel really good about and maybe grab them a round or two before you normally would, especially because of the type of player that we're playing with. These are going to be people that are not going to be ADP zombies. Yeah, I think that's that's true. I think so. It's There's the question of like, do we identify players ahead of time that we're just really bullish on? And basically, no matter what, we want those players on our team. So like, do we try to kind of just take the approach of like, let's assemble within sort of like a general draft range, like the 20 guys we want to have in week one, like roughly speaking. Yeah. Um, or yeah. Or do we kind of take more like a structural approach? I don't know. Like I, I think maybe I would probably be a little more focused on like players we wanted to have. Mm -hmm. I, I can see how one way that we could do it would be, and this might be the type of thing that everybody should do before a draft is you look in pockets of 24 or so positions in ADP and you identify the players in there that you feel really strongly about. And then we kind of work through that configuration. So we have different players at each point that we know that we like and that we want to have on the team. But I do think we could kind of blend that in with a structural approach, uh, but maybe not as dogmatic of a structural approach as we might have in other leagues. And some of this will be dependent on what draft slot we get, because normally I would be zero running back all the way. But if we did get a top three pick, I might be interested in going for a Barkley or a Christian McCaffrey or somebody like that. Yeah, I think if we have a top three pick, um, we would probably want to go with a, a running back. But I think there, yeah, my inclination is that given that this is a tight end premium league yep. and then that uh, there are two flex spots 
I would be interested in going, I don't know, like full zero running back, but sort of like a modified zero running back, like underweighting the running back position early on. Right. Um, and I and I think there's uh, a, a case to be made for going heavy at tight end early on. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, especially in a year like this where things at the position are so heavily slanted to the top that uh, there definitely is a significant advantage to be gained. And as we talked about in other weeks, these top tier tight ends now, they are scoring as many points as a lot of wide receivers and just as many points as running backs that are not finishing right at the top of the position. Um, Of course, though, some of that's going to be dependent on the draft spot that we get. My initial inclination was, like I said, if we could get a Barkley or maybe one or two other running backs, we would go for it and then kind of do a modified zero running back approach. So it seems like you're kind of on board with that. Yeah, I yeah, I think so. I just I really kind of want to think about it a little bit. Like what is what is going to give us the the most value in the early rounds uh positionally? I mean, there's I there's there's a pretty big drop off I think between the top 3 tight ends yep. and all of the other guys. So wherever that is in high stakes leagues that those guys are going like I kind of want to be aggressive in getting uh, at least one of the top tight ends, maybe two of them. Right. So th- the thing that I think gets tricky about this is we kind of get into some game theory here, right? Because I have to imagine that this is probably what a lot of other people in this league are going to be thinking. So it's almost like we need to have a contingency plan in place too. If we're not able to do that, how do we pivot so that we make ourselves different than these other teams in an advantageous way? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we just we literally map it out, um, yep. sort of r- round by round, in terms of like the key player or players that we would look to target. Um, and if it doesn't work for us in this round, then we pivot to this player or this position, and then that changes the strategy in the following three rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we we just map it out. Yeah, so I like that because it's kind of getting to a contingency-based approach by actually planning for it. So though maybe it's not a structural approach that has some contingency-based components built into it, but then we're actually having a bunch of different iterations of how we can build the team. And I think as far as talking about on the show goes, that would probably be helpful too. That way we're giving everybody the players that we feel really strongly about. So that kind of brings me to one other thing I wanted to talk with you about, which is... For each pick that we're making, what are we looking for in that pick? Meaning, are we trying to limit downside with each pick, maximize upside, something in between? In your opinion, does that kind of shift as you make your way through the draft? I know for me, it kind of does. Yeah, I mean, you... You don't want to strike out in like rounds one through three or whatever. But I mean, I think by the time you're in round six... I think we're just shooting for upside pretty much. I would agree with that. Um, I really find in retrospect at the end of each season, when I go back and I think about the teams that I've drafted, the teams where I tried to quote unquote play it safe or go with the players that maybe I felt comfortable with because I knew that they had a past track record or whatnot, but I didn't really feel great about those teams more often than not do not. 
outperform my expectations because none of these players hit. Uh, but there's definitely something to be said, and we've talked about this before, for making sure that you're using those first three rounds correctly. And I would kind of say that if we don't get one of the top tier running backs that we feel really good about in the first round, and depending on how things go, I don't think there's going to be any available in the second round. We kind of punt on running back till much later in the draft, because historically, if you go and you look at the running backs in rounds three to round eight, you're really not doing any better with those backs than you are post round eight. Uh, I mean, maybe, uh, I, I think I find that actually kind of hard to believe. I mean, I think you have to be able to find running backs in rounds three through eight who outperform on average, the guys who are going rounds nine and later, right? Well, I've done studies on this on the past and I would have to update, but that actually is what I found was that there was really no advantage gained by taking backs in rounds three through eight, especially because there's the component of you need to get those right. You need to get the right guys in that range. Because there's so few players in that range that it's hard to just kind of throw a dart on one of them for lack of a better term. And obviously there's different things we could be looking at, but the actual percentage of those guys that hit is very low. Maybe I'll come back with some stats for that in a future episode. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I would assume that uh, at some point in rounds three through eight, we are going to want to or need to take a running back. Okay. You know what I mean? Yep. So like I think we probably just identify ahead of time, you know, like these are the guys within this draft range that we are looking to take, you know, or like right. we are looking to have one running back before there are, I don't know, like 12 or 15 or 20 off the board. Yep. And then after that, we want to take kind of wherever, wherever it is in the draft, whatever round it is, you know, we're looking to take two of the next 10 guys drafted or, you know, we just sort of like find our range of where we want to attack positions. Right. I think also, I don't know if it's really possible to sort of um, stereotype uh, like high stakes fantasy players. Like, I don't know if that's possible, but like we would maybe kind of want to think about it. Like what are, if they have like exploitabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are those? Like where where might they be undervaluing players? Are there types of players they might undervalue? You know, just kind of try to flesh that out a little bit. I don't know if that's – if I don't know if we will really get anything out of that exercise or not, but I think it's at least worth doing. Yeah, and that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I might try to do is either have him come on or pass some notes along to him and get some thoughts on this. But – uh Monty Fan, um, one of our excellent writers on the site, has had a lot of success in high stakes leagues. So he definitely has a lot of information uh, and we might be able to to ask him about that. Uh, but that definitely drives home the point of just understanding the leagues that you're playing and or the type of players that you're playing against, because I do think you see a lot of trends in certain leagues and finding ways to exploit that uh, definitely can be very profitable. I also, for this uh, this show tonight, came with a list of things that we must not do. Uh, you can let me know if you have anything to add to this list or things that you think we must do. So some of my rules for redraft leagues are do not draft players that are injured during the preseason or coming off of severe injuries. The thought process on the players that are injured during the preseason, you already have a reason to rule these players out. 
I think that in a league like this, the beginning of the season is extremely important in setting up not only how you're going to manage your team in season, but getting you ahead of the game in terms of trying to make it into the playoffs. Um, And the second point is, and I wish I could remember the article, I have to look it up, but I know that we have done research in the past that's showing that players coming off of injury, even though they go at a discount, very rarely do you get the um, anticipated output that you're expecting. So there's a a discount, but it turns out that the player should be discounted. So you're not getting the deal that, that you think that you are. Um, another, along those lines too, I think that it might be tempting to go after players that are suspended for the beginning of the season. But to get back to my point, I think that you have to prioritize the early production in a league like this so that you start off strong, ensuring that you get into the playoffs um, as this league runs weeks one through 11 early on. Uh, do you agree with those with those sentiments? It's interesting. Like my gut instinct would be that we could actually maybe gain an edge by like targeting players like that. Yep. Um, but if there's evidence to the contrary, like I would, I would be interested in seeing that. Um, I'd also be interested in knowing um, what, what stake level that was at, because mm. I could see there being a, a pretty big difference between um, like ADPs uh, and uh, how they relate to players like this that come at a discount in like regular leagues versus high stakes leagues. I yeah. might be wrong, but I could see there being a difference. Right. right. So what would your assumption be though? That in high stakes leagues, the discount is not being, or the players that are coming with the discount are going later than they would in leagues, or are you just assuming that there's a difference, but you don't really have an inclination of which way it would I go? I think the, yeah, I'm trying to think about it. I think the difference might be that in the high stakes leagues, um, like that actually might be something to exploit that because people are playing for more money, um, because these are, you know, like quote unquote better fantasy players, yep. they might be likelier to let the riskier players slide farther. Mm, that's interesting. And actually that can make that that definitely can make some sense. I see what you're saying there. That's interesting. We're gonna have to think about that. Uh, another rule that I have is do not draft players because they represent a minimal level of guaranteed production. This is what I call like the Frank Gore rule for myself. Uh, I would find myself often or find myself often like round six and seven saying, oh, like I'll just take Frank Gore. I know I'm going to get something. I'll take those maybe 10 points per game, but you're really limiting the upside and you're getting a type of output that is replaceable from players that you would be able to pick up as the season progresses or in later rounds of the draft. So I think for me, that's one of the things that has been my biggest mistake. And actually when my brother and I, uh, had a major debacle of trying to co-manage a team one time. He had what he called known entities, which is he always wants to take the player that he knows what he can get from them as opposed to the player where there's a wider range of outcomes, but you might feel good about. So, you know, he would go after those yeah. guys with the known track record. But the problem was those were the players that the highest that they could go was matching their former production or down. Yeah, uh, and I, I mean, think- and, and that's the thing. Let's sorry to interrupt. Yeah, Let's fine. think about that a little bit because, like, what what is known can be much more easily valued. Yep. 
And so there's less opportunity for profit in targeting players like that. You know, like I think we want to target um, the, you know, the players who are in more of like the unknown situation because one, we might be able to uh, like assess to evaluate that player a little bit better than other people just in the general market. Um, But even if we're not, um, that person still might have the upside potential that comes with a a new situation or comes with circumstances that are kind of unknown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, sorry, just to yeah, jump go in, for it. The this idea of like the the known entity or or uh, wanting to avoid guaranteed production—that's sort of like the flip side of, of the same thing. Yep. But like that normally comes, uh, I think, in like the later rounds or starting in the mid rounds, yep. maybe, you know, like you're never, you're never going to have that situation like in rounds one through three, um, you know, maybe even in rounds four through five, you're probably not going to have that situation pop up all that much. And so by the time you're in round six, round seven, like I, I don't want the guy who's just a middling player who like, I know what he's going to give me. I want the guy with upside, like, nine out of 10 times. And that's probably even being conservative. Um, I mean, almost universally, I want the player who has the potential to turn into a league winner versus the guy who's just going to give me what I know I can get out of him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I wish I could remember the particular player it was, but this was a couple of years ago where I was trying to get my brother to take uh, digs with what at the time might've been like a seventh or like an eighth round pick. And there was, I don't remember who it was, but it was basically a player. He was like, no, this guy, you know, this is a player that's going to get 11 points each week. You know, I can feel good about putting them into my line. This lineup. is Randall Cobb. He's the number two <laughs> wide receiver for a Hall of Fame quarterback. Yes, exactly. It would have been something like that. Um, yeah. So you get where I'm going with that. So I think we're on yeah. the board there. And, and the thing is also like with these players, like they are roster cloggers. Because you know yep. what they are, you feel like, oh, like this is someone I can't drop. Yep. So you never even allow yourself the opportunity of turning over that roster spot. Yep. Whereas if it were someone, you know, who's kind of you're going in blind, not necessarily blind, but you know, like you're going in knowing that this is a speculative upside pick and it doesn't work out, you feel much freer to drop that person immediately and go get something else that potentially could turn around your team. Yeah, that's such a good point, which brings me to something I've talked about before, which is when you have a team of players, it's very easy to think of each player as the player that he is and not that roster spot. But it's really important to keep sight of the fact that that player is representing what could be potential, right? So it's kind of like, yeah, um, you know, that spot has potential energy, if you will. Perhaps you have it filled with some kinetic energy, but you could get something in there that has even more kinetic energy once you have it. Struggling to make yeah. that a better analogy, yeah. but no, I no that that makes sense. Like there's there are always opportunity cost, and um, you know, you always have to weigh the production that you're getting. Versus the potential production you could get if you brought in something else that's unknown and you kind of need to think about like total like, okay, how many points do I need this team to produce? And if a player is, you know, like 
producing enough points on his own where it's like, okay, this is good enough out of Frank Gore. Maybe it's even like, oh, Frank Gore's having a better season than I expected. It's like, yeah, but Frank Gore isn't going to make a difference to your team anyway. So like you need to turn over that roster spot to try to bring in someone else who provides more points that will add to the total number of points your team needs to produce. Yeah, exactly. In season, you can't be afraid to lose eight, seven points a game from a certain or eight, you know, a player that's getting you eight, seven points a week because there are players out there with the potential to go much higher, just like in the draft. And it's the same thing in the draft. We want to get those guys that have more potential. Final rule that I came to the table with tonight is do not draft a player solely because his ADP has been passed. There needs to be a compelling reason within the context of our team. So like, I don't want to go in and just because say, um, Christian Kirk is 10 spots behind where he normally goes and he represents a value that we just blindly go with him based off of that. There'd have to be another compelling reason in our roster. That is that the type of thing that you also do or do you kind of like to use that as maybe an opportunity to cash in? Uh, yeah, yes or yes and no. Like it has to be a, a player that I at least feel comfortable with. Um, maybe even the only threshold is that it's a player I don't hate mm-hmm. and like it, it fits in with like, okay, like I need to have seven wide receivers on my team. Um, it, this is the point in the draft where I look to take wide receivers. So it works like it, it's hard because big picture, if we were playing in, you know, like 12 different leagues, I think we could take much more of a kind of balanced approach where it's like, let's always take the discount when it's there. Because if we do that, if we are always like beating the market in terms of ADP, that will translate into more success later. And like, I think spread across a portfolio of teams that actually is true. And that's probably the optimal way to do it. Uh, And because I do try to think of my teams like collectively as a portfolio, like in each draft, I do try to be um, ADP mindful, mm-hmm. but this is a kind of different type right. of team. So, but at the same time, like, yeah, if the, if the market gives us value, I don't want to pass up on value. Um, just, just to pass up on it. You know what I mean? Like if we have, as long as it's a player, we actually like, you know what I mean? That's, that's right. the thing. Like, it has to be someone that we think actually works with our team. But like, I don't, it seems like I don't need the high threshold that you have. Like, I don't need it to be a compelling reason. I just need it to be enough of a reason. Okay. So this will be, um, so we're about halfway through, so we'll save some of this for, for a future episode. But the one thing we will have to think about is how we're actually going to make these decisions as we're navigating through the draft. Uh, the one thing I don't think we should try to do is anything where like I pick one, you pick one, I pick one, you pick one. Cause I feel like then we'll be like a George divided, uh, by itself. <laughs> yes. It will not stand. Uh, that's, that's a, that's a good reference there. I, I think that's accurate. Um, yeah, we might, yeah, we'll need to kind of think about the decision-making process. Um, but I mean, I think we'll be probably on the same page with stuff. Yeah. And there's always, I, I can't remember who it was who, who mentioned this, Um, but a high stakes player once talked about how, like, if there's a big discrepancy between, um, between him and his co-manager, they just put some money on it. Interesting. 
Um, and I think that works for you because generally your way of solving something is taking it to a bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a bad way, I think, of actually doing it. If it's like, okay, if you are insistent we take this player over that player, let's let's put a little bit of money on it. Okay. To where like if it if it doesn't work out, you you kick some money to me because I was right and you were wrong. Okay. <laughs> but, I like that. But I, I mean I don't I don't know if we need to go that way. Yeah. But let, that's a that's at least an interesting idea. It's a way of kind of thinking about how to balance the market in the decision making process. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Or or another interesting thing could be you would we would do it like um adjusting the the split of our championship winnings based on a player. So it's like if one person That's really funny. pushes for like the two, then like we'd have to think about that a little bit more. Anyways, yeah. those are things that yeah. you and I can can discuss. I don't think the listeners need that. Uh but uh Obviously, as we're talking about the main event leagues in the FFPC here, uh, we do want to remind you that the FFPC is the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. Well, it may be the off-season for most people, it definitely is not for our listeners or the players at the FFPC. If you're a diehard who's ready to draft now... The FFPC best ball leagues are already open for 2019. Drafts are forming daily starting at just a $35 entry fee. Uh, They're just killing it with the dynasty leagues. They really have become the go-to destination for serious dynasty players. They have almost 300 active dynasty leagues starting at $77 up to a $5,000 entry dynasty league and the best part is not a single dynasty league has folded in nine years limited orphan teams are available for purchase right now and brand new startup dynasty leagues will be opening shortly don't miss the ffpc experience rotoviz listeners go to myffpc.com and register now that's myffpc.com the home of season long high stakes fantasy football love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only only at Banana Republic Factory. Our next topic, and I think that this actually might factor into this team that we put together, but what I did, Matt, was I went back and I looked at from 2010 to 2018, every player's rookie season, sliced it up by round and by position, and looked at the percentage of players that hit 160 points in their rookie season PPR points with the thought being that that's approximately assuming a player plays a 16 game season, 10 points per game. That's the threshold I went with. Does that make sense before I get into the results? Yes. I am curious though, why you chose 2010. Uh, 2010, to be honest, it was kind of arbitrary, but I felt like um, it was, I think easier to conceptualize than going back to like 2000 where I had data from going back to 2010, looking at the past eight seasons of maybe, you know, in that time frame we saw passing really become the league focus. And I think around 2010 was where it was starting to get harder to make the case that you have to have those two running backs to start the draft. Like the old mantra used to be. 
Yeah, the one thing I would say is that um, by going to 2010, you miss the not. I mean, not to quibble too much on this, yeah. but like you miss the running back class of 2008, and you miss the wide receiver class of 2009, and there were also some some decent running backs in 2009 as well. So that actually raises an interesting question while we're talking through things here. To you, does the 2008 class still matter? Of course, you could then counter with, does the 2010 class still matter? But for things like this, how do you, if you were doing, you know, if you were the one collecting this data, how would you have thought about cutting off where you would look at? Yeah, I mean, I probably would have done like, I don't know, the last 10 years, which I guess would have included 2008, or maybe I would have done like the last 15 years. I mean, it probably would have been just as arbitrary and there's not much of a difference between like eight and 10, but um, I think I probably would have, let me see this. I think I would have stopped actually at uh, 2007 or 2006 because I think that's really when like the pass happy era starts. Like 2006 with uh, Drew Brees, his first season in New Orleans, I like to me, that's the beginning of the pass happy era. Um, and then that sort of transforms into the Patriots in 2007, uh, really going with more of a pass heavy approach. I think in part because they saw what the Saints had done the year before. Um, and then I would say like by 2008, you have, uh, many more teams that are focused on being, uh, skewed toward the pass. In 2008, was that Aaron Rodgers' first year? Did I make that up? Or not like his first year as a starter? Uh, yeah, 2008 was his first year. So, like, I, I probably actually thinking about this, I maybe would have started with 2008 because I think by then you have enough teams that are really focused on, on the passing game and you still have like a 10 year sample. I, yeah, that's what I probably would have done. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to think about that before I sit down and actually turn this into an article. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to, <laughs> to, 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 to uh, go through that. No, it's okay. But, no, I mean, I yeah. think that that's an interesting thing. And it does highlight that sometimes when we're looking at numbers and results, we will talk about them like they're 100% the facts. But you never know, perhaps, if you extend the range that you're looking at. If it's going to radically change things, I think with with enough, um, or I think with the data that I have here, I'd be surprised if it drastically changed things. I agree. I do agree with that. But um, nonetheless, it's 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 interesting to think about, and perhaps actually, when I'm doing this study, I could even break it out into timelines, and if there are interesting differences, present those, and if not, just kind of you know mention mention it. Anyway, though, let's get into the data. So. Do you want to start looking at a specific position or do you want to look at all positions first? Um, I think let's – I mean, I don't know if it makes sense really to – okay, I'm fine with doing whatever. Let's look at all positions okay. first. So all positions. Now, obviously, as you would expect, and again, we are looking at rookie players in their first season. The threshold we're looking at is seeing what number or what percentage of players from each round in the draft – got to 10 points per game. As you would expect, we see things dropping off very quickly. Out of round one, in my sample, we have 79 total players. 36 of them, or 46%, um, hit that 10-point-per-game threshold. Now, remember, that is 46% of rookies that were drafted in round one. So right there, that tells you that 
you're probably going to want to be, if you're drafting rookies, really focusing only on the early rounds because in round two, 83 players, only 15 or 18% made it to that threshold. And by the time we get to round three, where there's 75 players, only nine or 12% of them made it to 10 points per game. And then after that, the highest total that we see is 5%. So basically in rounds four through six, you're looking at like a 4% chance of those players as rookies hitting that 10 point per game threshold. Do you think that's surprising, Matt, or is that what you would have expected? No, this is entirely common sense. Um, The players, and this is why I tend to think of players as like, is he a top 100 player or not a top 100 player? Because that is typically where the like round three to round four transition comes around pick 100. And so, yeah, if a guy is a top 100 pick, uh, he typically has much more opportunity to contribute as a rookie. Um, I do think that the one thing we will need to think about is um, like this, uh, this threshold of 10 points per game. It is obviously much easier for a quarterback yep. to hit that than like a running back or wide receiver. So uh, it's potential. It's it, I don't know. There is the potential that this is skewed a little bit by quarterbacks. Um, but I mean, obviously, because you have the splits here, we can look at the individual splits by positions. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that, you know, if a guy's drafted in the first round, he has a really good chance of contributing right away, especially if he's a quarterback or running back. Um, because, you know, like a quarterback, he's out there. He's the only quarterback on the field. When a running back is out there, he's basically the only running back on the field. It's different with a wide receiver. But if there's a first rounder who is actually going to get usage, it's not a surprise that he's a, a, a fantasy contributor right away. Yeah. And I think that it's important that we look at these results now, because like I said earlier, we've been focusing so much on rookies and we're so excited about these players But unless they're drafted in those first three rounds, you probably want to file them away, save them for later in redraft. Uh, And as you said, those numbers are inflated by quarterbacks. So 27 round one quarterbacks, 63% or 17 hit that threshold. Round two quarterbacks, there were eight, 50% hit it. 29 in round three. Uh, 0% in round four and then 33% in round five players. But it's exactly like you said, we really see those quarterbacks drafted in the first three rounds getting opportunity. And it's not surprising that a quarterback will be able to get to that 10 point per game threshold. Yeah, not a surprise that the guys who are first rounders and I would say even second rounders um, that, you know, when they start, they have a high likelihood of, I mean, if they don't suck scoring 10 points per game. Um, and so included in that would be, you know, some of the guys you remember, like Andy Dalton, um, started Derek Carr started, um, you know, like you can find functional guys as second rounders. Like if they're seeing the field, they actually could give you some points. Yeah, for sure. And where it really gets interesting though, I think is when we get out of quarterback and we move to running back because, Round one running backs, we've had 15, pretty good rate though. Eight out of those players, 53% did reach that threshold. Round two players, we see it drop down to 23, five out of 22. And then in round three, we have four out of 20 for 20%. After that, by the time we get to round four, it's down to like 8%. So there's definitely a stark contrast between what we saw at quarterback and 
it definitely speaks to the fact that you kind of have to do look at that at this position by position. Nonetheless, though, I think that that round one running back percentage is pretty impressive. Yeah, and there's um, yeah, I mean, for me, for at least for the past couple of years, I've really thought about it in terms of like days of the draft. So there's a massive difference between a running back drafted on day one and day two, and like not much of a difference between a day like between a round two and a round three running back. And you see that uh, you see that in the numbers here. Like there's almost no distinction. But then there's a cliff between day two and day three running backs. Like even if a guy's drafted on day four, sorry, on on in round yep. four. Um, which you think like, oh, that's not all that far from round three. Like there's a massive difference in how the league uh, gives those guys opportunities as rookies. You know, like if a guy is a fourth round pick, yep. you know, like he has a chance to contribute, but it's not all that great of a chance. Yeah. And I think like a player like David Montgomery, it's interesting when you can consider him in a lens like this. So he's in a situation was drafted in round three, uh, yeah. you have Mike Davis there. You have Tarek Cohen. You already have players in that backfield. Round three players, 20% chance. Granted, it's a small sample of hitting, but that's already speaking to there's not the greatest uh, probability of him hitting. So it might speak to the fact that a player like that if you're at the point where you're taking shots on guys, maybe might not be the best option to kind of swing for the fences with. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think it's it's this question of, so uh, the threshold of 10 points per game, like not that that's meaningless, but, you know, like baked into that, there are guys who just far exceed that. Yep. And then we're also not taking into account like ADP during fantasy drafts. Right. So, you know, like if you do find a guy who does exceed 10 points per game, he might even be able to exceed 15 points per game and you might be able to get him later than you otherwise would have. You know, like yep. so someone like classic here, I think Daryl Henderson, yep. like he's the guy who has to pop to mind here because like if he gets more than 10 points per game, he's not getting just 10 points per game. He's getting like. 15 to 17 points per game, you know, because right. like the circumstances that would have to uh, like assert themselves for him to be able to get even 10 points per game, like that inherently means like Todd Gurley is out or like, you yep. know, they're like, there's something massive that happens. And if that happens, he's going to be someone who far exceeds that. And also because he's available so late in the draft. Uh, relative to other guys who have the potential to get 10 or more points, he could really be a league winner. It, yeah. So like, yeah. And actually, so he's the guy I, I think of when I'm looking at like a, a day two running back in this, like he's someone to target. Yeah. That kind of brings me to one of the things I was going to say as we start looking at the other positions. I think if there is a position where I'm willing to kind of counteract what I might have as an instinct after looking at these numbers it's definitely running back and it's just for the reason that you said because when you do see these players getting into that position where they're going over these thresholds and we will look at 15 percent, they have the highest chance at running back of really crushing it uh so at wide receiver round one wide receivers we had 30 of them only 10 or 33 percent hit that 10 point per game threshold uh, only 17 percent in round two and then we're already down to eight percent in round three Takeaway here is it's difficult for wide receivers that are rookies 
to really assert themselves as weekly options, and especially when you get outside of those round one players. Yeah. So for the the wide receivers, what's interesting, um, and I, I'd seen research on this before and done a little bit on it myself, but the difference between um, a first round and a second round wide receiver um, at least like smooth over career isn't nearly as great as the difference between a second rounder and a third rounder. So, you know, like if we were to target wide receivers, I think we really wanted to be a first rounder or maybe a second rounder, but probably not a third rounder. It's interesting this year too, I think with Marquise Brown being one of those round one players, a player that neither of us like, uh, yeah. but you do have to make some type of an adjustment in your mind and maybe more so from a dynasty perspective, just given that, that draft capital. Yeah. I mean, so for instance, like the type of player I would never want to touch is miles Boykin. Who's like a classic third rounder kind of boomer bust speculative type of guy. Like, Oh, he's got great physicality and it's like, fine, but he's, I, I like, I would bet heavily that he's going to do nothing as a rookie. Yeah, I, I think that makes complete sense. Um, any thoughts on that before we go to tight ends, which I'm I'm very interested to get your take on a particular player here. Yeah, let's talk about tight ends. There were seven round one tight ends in the sample. Only one of them got over the 160 point threshold. That was Evan Ingram. Very specific set of circumstances that allowed him to do it. Behind him... We do not see any tight ends reaching that threshold. This is something we've talked about before. But for a player like TJ Hawkinson in Detroit, do you still have any interest in him as a rookie at all this year? No, not really. I mean, think about Gronk. Like as great as he was, and he, he managed to score 10 touchdowns as a rookie, even Gronk didn't have all that great of a rookie season. You know, like it takes guys at that position at least a year to develop. So as great as I think Hawkinson could be for his career, he's not someone I want to target at all yep. in rookie, uh, you know, like in year one. Or, yeah. And yeah, just totally, totally avoid to make it even more interesting. We see in 2010, Rob Gronkowski at 156.6 behind him. Another rookie that season, Aaron Hernandez at 142. Again, that's kind of a different set of circumstances than most players are going to be in. Uh, and then Hunter Henry at 132 in 2016. Interestingly, Jermaine Gresham in 2010 at 123. Um, but we can see that, you know, going after production in your tight end spot from a rookie is just not a good way to do it. Yeah. So we'll quickly look at uh, the greater than 15 point per game threshold here. Um, in totality, uh, only 2% of players are going to reach that threshold, uh, round one players, 13 out of 79 or 16%. And then even in round two, we only see 4% of them at quarterback. There is a decrease of round one players down to 26%, uh, already down to 13 and 14 rounds two and three, but running back round one running backs. Four out of 15 players or 27% hit the 15 point per game threshold. So when we were looking at running backs, we saw, I believe it was 53 at 10%. And about half of those players do it. 
um, going over 15. So I think that kind of touches upon what we were talking about is when these players are able to do it at the running back position, there's a very good chance that they will be maybe a league winner. Whereas that wide receiver, only two out of 30 round one players have gone for the 15 point threshold at 7%. And in round two, we only see one out of 36 doing it. And then at tight end, we don't see any players. Yeah. Um, One thing I think we would need to think about is in terms of maybe like halves of the season, um, because I could see this potentially being skewed. So like there are like rookie wide receivers who do nothing in the first eight games. And then like after the bye, whatever it is in the second half of the season, uh, they start to contribute um, much more intensely. And maybe part of it is because like the team's like, okay, uh, we're out of the playoffs. We need to start throwing the ball more or like, hey, we need to give this guy more playing time. Um, this other like veteran wide receiver, like it's his final year in the contract, whatever it is. There are like lots of ways that you can kind of rationalize why it is that rookies maybe can explode, especially wide receivers in the second half of the season. So like they wouldn't necessarily show up in an analysis like yep. this because they've been playing the whole season. Um, but that might be something to consider, but I mean, big picture, um, I don't think we want to be drafting those guys anyway. And that's kind of what I think a lot of this is built around. Um, those would be guys that we would like hope to pick up or look to pick up in the middle of the season, not guys that we want to build our teams around entering the season. Yeah, exactly. I think that as far as this analysis goes, that's definitely the biggest hole in it. Uh, but it definitely drives to the point of using major discretion when adding rookies into a redraft team, especially when you're using them as kind of like a backbone of your team. I think that a player like Saquon Barkley last year, that's that's the type of situation where I, I think it could make sense. But moving outside of those real strong three down type of running backs it is hard to make a case. Now, a player like Nkeel Harry, let's just quickly think about that before we close out tonight. How do you feel about a player like him? I think that when you're looking at the situation he's in, it's a little bit different than maybe your typical round one wide receiver. Agree, disagree, thoughts? Uh, I think his situation is very similar to what we see out of most round one receivers. You know, like most round one receivers are going to get some playing time. Um, They'll probably be a starter. Um, They might get anywhere from like 80 to 120 targets. Um, I think it's sort of like right in line with what we would see out of a typical uh, typical first round guy. Yeah. And and again here, uh, just to remind everybody, on the... 10 point per game threshold, uh, 10 out of 30 round one wide receivers got to that 33% threshold, which I think maybe is lower than what it feels like, especially if you think about a player like Harry. I feel like if we polled fantasy players out there, you would see a much higher percentage than that of, of people saying that they think that Harry's going to get there. Um, of course, you know, may, that's not to say that because – let me think about how I want to say this. Obviously, each situation is is different, but I guess my point of illustrating that is maybe it's not as much of a lock as everybody might think. 
Yeah, I think it's it's definitely not a lock. Um, but I think he has a a fair chance of being a low end wide receiver three. You know, like whatever that is worth to you. Um, right now, I have him projected for. I don't, and I don't know if you have uh, projections yet for some of the the teams, but like I have him projected for uh, around like eighty five targets, um, a little over fifty receptions. Uh, just under 750 receiving yards and just over six touchdowns. And then I also have sprinkled in because I think he's going to get the ball some on like jet sweeps mm-hmm. and stuff like that because he was actually a pretty good runner in college. Um, I think he could get around like 50 rushing yards and like he probably won't get a rushing touchdown, but he might get one. Yeah, I actually haven't done um, team by team projections yet. I would expect that I'd probably come out somewhere around there. Um, but but as kind of like a, a, a point on this, yeah. like, is there really anything all that exciting about 800 receiving yards and six touchdowns? Like, eh, it's – I mean, it's okay, but it's not it's not great. It's not going to, like, make the difference for your team unless you get uh, Harry or, or production like that pretty, uh, pretty late in your draft. Yeah, I agree, and I – don't think that that's going to be a possibility. You know, it's almost yeah. like you're in a situation where I could see Damian Harris, if you were going to go for a Patriots rookie, being the one to go for, uh, because I don't think he's going to creep up too high given the other players in the offense and Sony Michelle. I could be wrong on that. Um, yeah, I, I do agree with that. Yeah. So anyway, to close out, be excited about these rookies, but recognize that utilizing them heavily in redraft this season might not be the strongest idea. Obviously it's somewhat ADP dependent. Um, Maybe in the coming weeks, we'll look at second year players. Um, If anybody's interested in that, or we're reaching the point now where there's definitely a lot of questions that players might have heading into 2019, definitely start sending us emails. If there's any specific topics that you that listeners want to hear about definitely do that um or or shoot us a message on twitter but that's going to do it for tonight's episode again please rate review and subscribe to the podcast follow us on twitter at dave cabin ff and at matt f the oracle be sure to check out rotoviz and also uh i do want to just mention that if you're not aware and you haven't been to the site in a couple of weeks, we're having just absolutely tremendous PGA coverage and content coming out by Matt Jones. We have a couple of golf apps up. If you're looking to get into uh, PGA DFS, like we definitely have you covered. We have a month long and a rest of season subscription. I would highly recommend going and checking those out. Even if you're a casual golf fan, um, you know, it's, it's just, a fun way to um, just add to if you just want to catch like an hour or two of golf over the weekend. Uh, But that's going to do it for today's show. Uh, And until next time, remember, it's not a fantasy if you believe it. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. 
Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. It's the sale you've been waiting for. Now through Monday, get a huge 50% off the styles you need now with 50% off all jeans, 50% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, 50% off. Jeans start at 15 bucks for adults, 10 bucks for kids. Want fashion in a flash? Buy online and pick up in-store for free. Hurry, the sale ends Monday at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 829 to 9-2 excludes in-store clearance, jumpsuits, rompers, bubbles, active license, and men's package tees. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.